Fueled by the Outdoors, your source for hunting, fishing, archery, and all things outdoors. Brought to you by the Elite Outdoors. Welcome to Fueled by the Outdoors. I'm your host, Rick Cates, and Chris is not here with us today. He's actually up north in Michigan hunting smallies and pike with his family. So hopefully he gets back down here to us soon and we'll be able to give you more content with both of us setting up for the ever uh, coming of fall and all the good things that come along with that. You know, we're only uh, about halfway into summer. Actually, we're not even halfway into summer. It just feels like it some days because it's so darn warm. Uh, but today we thought it would be a good idea to cover some of information for you guys. You know, last week we did a big podcast on the Great American Outdoors Act, and we had some feedback regarding, you know, what what are all the things that go into uh, wildlife conservation and things along those lines. So we felt like there was a couple, like, real base things that we needed to cover in order to help people out in understanding. And as always, if you have questions, we can be reached at the Elite Outdoors One at gmail.com. That is the Elite Outdoors, the number one at gmail.com. So, a couple things that we thought were important were the North American model of wildlife, the Lacey Act, the um, Migratory Bird Act, which is actually called the Weeks McLean Law, which ended market hunting, and uh, one of the fathers of, well, actually, the father and architect of the North American model of wildlife, Aldo Leopold. Some of you have, may have heard of him. He wrote a book called Sand County Almanac, which uh, if you're a reader, I, I mean, even if you're not, I think if you're, if you're a hunter or fisherman or outdoors person, it is required reading and understanding how this guy wrote through essays the, the great things about our country and all over it and his travels um, until eventually he landed in Wisconsin, uh, the associate director of forestry, I believe, there, um, before he became the teacher at uh, the Wisconsin, um, at the University University of Wisconsin, uh, super intelligent dude, and gave us most of our ideas for the North American model of wildlife. So again, these are things that we as hunter and fishermen, I think, sometimes take for granted, and outdoors people take for granted. And we're called fueled by the outdoors for a reason. We like the outdoors. We want people to be out there and conservation, whether you're hunting or fishing or bike riding or mountain climbing or rock climbing, mountaineering, or just getting out on the water. These things are important because if you don't have safeguards for your uh, animals and you know flora and fauna, you're not going to have true conservation and you're not going to have a good biome. You're probably listening and thinking, Rick, you know, what is this thing that you've stated like four different times already? And uh, you're probably looking at the the name of the podcast this week saying Seven Pillars. What, what the heck is that about? So I'll go ahead and get into it. So the North American model of wildlife conservation uh, is the world's most successful system of policies and laws uh, that were put into place to restore and safeguard all our fish and wildlife and their habitats through sound science and active management. Um, if you want more information regarding this stuff and you know other readings that you can do on it, just go to fishandwildlife.org. They've got a ton of stuff as well as um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a ton of stuff as well. So the seven pillars, that sounds kind of weird. Why would I bring that up? Seven pillars are what makes the model work. 
And each one of them has a rationale and a reason behind them in order to help operate the system. And it's, it's seven uh, interdependent principles. The first one uh, is wildlife resources are conserved and held in trust for all citizens. So what that means is, you know, when we came over from other countries and things like that, they had um, the idea, you've heard, if you've ever watched movies like Robin Hood or read books like that, the king's deer, the king's animals. Uh, all the animals on um, in certain areas belong to a king or they, uh, they were owned by the people who own the property or things like that. In America, um, the wildlife resources, deer, turkey, you know, any of the fish, any of the things that you can legally catch or take are actually resources for all citizens. So it doesn't matter what property you're on. They're held in trust by all of the citizens of the country. Now, that doesn't mean you get to go walk on somebody's land and kill a deer or, you know, fish their property. Uh, you know, those are different states have different rules along those lines. And, you know, here in the Midwest, you mainly have to go and ask for that kind of stuff before you can actually go on anybody's property and, and, and hunt or fish there. So we've talked before about permissions, especially with uh, Officer Gilkey when he was on here, about the importance of that kind of stuff and getting written permission as well. The second one is commerce in dead wildlife is eliminated. So that'll get more into the Lacey Act and uh, the Migratory Bird Act that we uh, talked about just a second ago, the Weeks-McLean Law. Um, you can't sell dead wildlife. So you'll see sometimes that venison will be on a restaurant's menu. That wasn't running around in a field earlier that day in at least in North America. You know, most of venison you buy from places is from farms and things like that. You can't actually go out, hunt, and then sell uh, the meat that you get uh, from those animals or fish for that matter unless you have a commercial fishing license and that's a whole, you know, different thing that you can look up as something for each one of the states that, you know, you would want to commercially fish in. But Commerce and dead wildlife is completely eliminated. And the reason for this is because market hunting back in the 1800s and early 1900s was something that almost wiped out and nearly wiped out all of our um, species that we tend to hunt. You know, elk, deer, bear, buffalo, uh, all, all these, you know, animals that we, you know, come to think of when someone says hunting or big game animal, you know, that that's, that's what the they're talking about those animals were almost completely wiped out due to the fact that people were market hunting and selling the hides and meat and things like that to overseas or to restaurants you know back east but we don't allow that in the country anymore uh, wildlife is allocated according to democratic rule of law that's number three number four wildlife may only be killed for a legitimate non-frivolous purpose so this gets into you know when we talk about being an ethical hunter. Uh, all our laws are based on ethics. And you're not allowed just to go out and stack up deer or stack up elk or stack up turkeys because um, you want to. Uh, you know, you can only kill them for a legitimate purpose, which is normally food. Really, that's about it. <laughs> um, you know, there's other legitimate purposes, I, I, I feel, probably, but... 
Um, you can't just frivolously go out there and, you know, shoot deer and uh, animals for no apparent reason. What that does is it damages the populations and it allows for the resource to completely deplete itself. Number five, wildlife is an international resource. So this gets into a couple different things that we don't tend to think of, I think, you know, being at least I don't never used to being a Midwesterner, you know, people on the northern border and people on the southern border tend to think about these things a lot more because you have animals going back and forth between uh, two uh, countries, Mexico and Canada. And with those animals, they are considered an international resource in those areas, along with ducks, geese, cranes, and any migratory bird. You know, that that's uh, part of the Migratory Bird Act is it is a combination of laws and regulations that were put in place across multiple countries, um, you know, anywhere from, look at the Sandhill Crane, they um, be in Russia, fly to Canada, fly through to Texas, and then fly back up. You know, that that's, that's three countries right there, you know, traveling multiple time zones, multiple states, multiple provinces, in order to get to be a place where you have the ability to hunt. So it takes a lot concentrating all those things together and allowing you know all those different countries and law enforcement agencies to be able to come together and have a clear set of rules and that was the purpose of the u.s fish and uh, wildlife services um, idea with the migratory bird act um, number six every person has an equal opportunity under the law to participate in hunting and fishing you know we're getting close to july the fourth and one of the things that makes our country great is equal opportunity for people. Every person should be able to go out and hunt and fish, you know, barring you've committed some type of felony or something like that where you don't have the ability to use a gun or use a bow or something along those lines because it's a term of your probation. But, you know, in terms of fishing, you know, unless you're poaching, which is not hunting or fishing to begin with, you know, you get that equal opportunity to be able to go out and you get to be able to do those things that every American has the ability to go and do and enjoy the outdoors. Number seven, scientific management is the proper means for wildlife conservation. So this is something that is important. And a lot of guys and women, I don't think, um, know this part of it is that there's a lot of science that goes behind uh, your numbers behind bag limits, uh, limit of, you know, take for the entire year or things along those lines. You know, there's hard numbers based on data that we get every year. One thing that I got from the state of Ohio just actually yesterday was a bow hunter survey that I filled out at the end of the season last year, I believe. And it gave me all the information based off of what county I was hunting in, how many days I had in the stand, how much information I had given them to help further their understanding of if the deer populations are dwindling, if they're staying the same, if it's uh, a lower take number this year, all that different stuff. So science plays a large role in this. You know, I think we also have talked in the past one of the big projects that you see right now is trying to figure out where the nor where the uh, ruffed grouse has basically gone in the Midwest and in the East due to the fact that there's a lot of factors 
uh, scientifically that they're looking at now. West Nile virus, habitat destruction, lack of a healthy forest habitat for these guys to be able to drum and, you know, create broods for them to be able uh, to, you know, repopulate areas. When you think about it, seven different things make seven pillars. You know, they hold up the model that we have used for uh, at least 100 years at this point to reclaim a lot of wildlife species, a lot of habitat, and a lot of other things for the North American um, wildlife that we, you know, really put a hurting on when we uh, first got over here. While, while there's some papers that say it was on its way out in some ways, but we, you know, didn't do us, do ourselves real justice when we were uh, out shooting a hundred bears a, a, in a season or things like that per person. And, um, you know, there's stories, I'm sure if you've read anything about Daniel Boone, he talks about killing 138 black bears in one year, uh, which is just mind boggling considering that he did that in Kentucky. And now, you know, we have a, a quota hunt every year for I think 10 bears or something along those lines if I don't know what I'm talking about there correct me guys I'd be happy to go back over it so some of this stuff you know is is pretty pretty cut and dry on why we would do it but said earlier a guy named Aldo Leopold kind of created these these seven pillars and realistically he's he's kind of known as like the father the, the you know the architect of the North American model wildlife. And, uh, you know, early on in his career, uh, Leopold was actually assigned to hunt and kill bears, wolves, mountain lions in New Mexico. A, a lot of ranchers out there at the time, you know, this is this is right around the turn of the century. They, they hated um, they hated predators because it, it created livestock losses and, you know, cattle out there is still big business. Leopold, if you've ever read the book, uh, A Sand County Almanac, there's a essays there's a part in it where he talks about he actually killed a wolf and um, saw the green fire dying in her eyes and at that point he really took more of an ecocentric look at the ecological ethics surrounding wildlife conservation in the country you know deer had been you know diminishing buffalo were damn near gone by then and wolves were on their way out and he wanted to look at how you could balance all the wildlife with, you know, us being there as well. So in the 20s, Leopold had really kind of concluded that a particular kind of preservation should really be embraced through the National Forests of the West, because that's where he was at this time, was New Mexico. Uh, rather than building roads to accommodate uh, automobiles and heavy recreational demands on public lands, he was really the first one to term uh, – wilderness you know capital w federal designated wilderness uh, to describe to describe a, a preservation method for that we talk a lot about teddy roosevelt and how big of a conservationist is and how he was able to get all these wonderful places that we love to go to national parks wilderness areas on the map but you know it was really kind of leopold that saw ethical sensitivity from these relationships that he had developed as a need to really connect all these um, acts and laws and things together so we could, you know, look less at conquest and self-interest and more at the ultimate uh, con uh, conservation that we 
we now know. So, you know, by the 30s, um, he was the foremost ex expert on wildlife management in the country. He advocated for science, uh, he, uh, for wildlife habitats in both public and private landholders. And you'll see this now with uh, guys who do QDMH. A lot of that stuff is based on Leopold's teachings and thoughts. And um, he really defined the science of wildlife management as the art of making land produce sustained annual crops of wild game for recreational use. So not putting, not taking more than what would be needed. So next year's uh, crop would be just as good. You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes when I say crop. Um, you know, we're not har we're not farming animals, but it's an idea that, you know, did work in helping us really put the kibosh on these market hunting thoughts and, you know, not having any type of regulations that we really needed at that time. So Leopold actually in, you know, really kind of the second phase of his life, um, really promoted wilderness. Like there, there's, there's actually a wilderness, um, out West called the Leopold wilderness. So Leopold actually took the concept of wilderness to a new meaning. He really no longer saw it as hunting or recreation. He saw it really as a biome to begin including things like wolves and mountain lions and bears and really trying to restore order and naturalism to the you know United States and getting things back in a healthy place whereas it wasn't at that time now part of the reason it wasn't at that time mainly uh, is due to market hunting and the illegal take of animals and, and things along those lines so you know we we covered a, a great thing last week called the Great American North the North American the Great American Outdoors Act, and it's it's going to help with funding you know places around the United States, you know in communities in being able to get more money to wildlife departments and things like that. But actually, there was multiple things previous to that that helped set this up. So one of those things uh, that we felt like was an important thing for people to know about is the Lacey Act. And the Lacey Act is a 1900 United States law that bans trafficking in illegal wildlife. Ba back, back in the day, uh, you could uh, you know, take things over state lines, you, you know, things you really weren't supposed to. Um, now it, is a fel it was a felony after this, and more recently... In 2008, the act was actually amended to include plants and plant products such as timber and paper. You know, this type of legisla legislation is something that still a lot of other countries don't actually have. The Lacey Act is a fact-based statute with strict liability, which means that only actual legality counts. No third-party certification or verification schemes can be used to prove legality under the act, and violators of the law can face criminal you know, and civil sanctions, even if they didn't know what they were dealing with, was a legally harvested product. So this gets into um, people illegally, you know, shooting animals, taking them across state lines, um, illegally taking fossils and things like that, moving them. You know, long ago, it used to be it was every state uh, had different things with this and um, a struggle because you could mark, you could still market hunt in, in this way. You know, by the late 1800s, 
hunting and shipment of birds for commercial market because of people at restaurants or um, people wanted feathers for fancy hats, things like that, had taken a big toll on bird uh, species. Most notably, there's actually um, a bird called the passenger pigeon. And uh, there's uh, only one uh, that I can really think of that I've ever actually seen. And it is a stuffed passenger pigeon named Martha. And Martha was literally the last passenger pigeon uh, alive. And she was at the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, eventually died. And they I believe she stuffed it in the Smithsonian. They've got a, uh, a replica of her there in Cincinnati, but they've also got a very large, um, you know, brass statue of the bird with a part of Aldo Leopold's essay on the passenger pigeon and how they used to black out the sky with these immense flocks. And, uh, you know, they're, they're apparently these big, you know, just these massive, I would guess you would call them almost swarms of birds, you know, 20,000, 30,000 birds. And uh, they would black out the sun, as he would say. Populations of Eskimo curlew and other shoe birds had been decimated as well. The snowy egret and other colonial era wading birds had just been reduced to complete minimal amounts of the historical hop population. So when the Lacey Act was passed in 1900, it prohibited game taken illegally in one state from being shipped across the state boundaries, contrary to the laws of the state where they were taken. So the Lacey Act was a really effective tool in enforcing wildlife laws of the states and federal government. However, in the early 20th century, the act was really ineffective in stopping interstate shipments, largely because of huge profits enjoyed by market hunters, which then led to what is called the passage of the Weeks-McLean Law. So the Weeks-McLean Law, uh, which uh, became effective in 1913, was designed to stop commercial market hunting altogether and the illegal shipment of migratory birds from one state to another. It actually says uh, in the act, all wild geese, wild swans, brant, wild ducks, snipe, plover, woodcock, rail, wild pigeons, and all other migratory game and insectivorous birds, which in their northern and southern migrations pass through or do not permanently the entire year within the borders of any state or territory shall hereafter be deemed to be within the custody and protection of the government of the United States and shall not be destroyed or taken contrary to regula regulations hereinafter provided therefore. So the Weeks McLean uh, rested kind of on weak constitutional grounds and it was passed as a rider to an appropriation bill and then it was actually replaced by the Migratory Bird Act of 1918. And the Migratory Bird Act um, international conservation treaties with Canada, Mexico, Japan, and Russia. So as I stated, you know, these birds are flying from a really, really long, long ways away, especially some of these sea ducks that you see on the east and the west coast. The law uh, had been amended with each signing of the treaty, and um, the treaties were amended, uh, I believe, last in 1995 with Canada having some amendments put in it at, at that point. You know, there's a very large list of migratory birds that are actually covered under this. So you may be asking what actually is a migratory bird uh, need to look like or be when it, it says it's on this list. So there's three criteria. 
One, it occurs in the United States or the U.S. territories as a result of a natural or biological ecological process and is currently or was previously listed as part of a family protected by one of four international treaties or amendments. Those are the ones that I said earlier. Uh, revised taxonomy results in it being uh, newly split from a species that was previously on the list. New evidence exists for its natural occurrence in the United States, U.S. territories, resulting from natural distributional changes. So it allows for science actually to be kind of put into this to where if a bird, for some reason, for some natural occurrence, begins migrating through the United States more and more and more, or its distribution changes, it allows for these birds to be actually added into the um, Migratory Bird Act. And, and if you would like a, a copy of all of the birds uh, on fws.gov slash birds slash policy and regulations, there's a downloadable Excel file on there that gives you every bird that you could possibly think of that's on that list. So I say all these things for you know the main reason of us looking at what makes you a good conservationist. And a good conservationist is someone who upholds the ethics of the seven pillars that Aldo Leopold kind of set forth a very long time ago. And he and guys like Teddy Roosevelt and Gilbert Pinchot, the, these are guys who spent their lives, you know, figuring it out on the fly and then finally saying, like, look, these are the things that we need to do as Americans to preserve our outdoor wildlife. And again, outdoor wildlife meaning all game animals and species, but also any type of you know, songbirds, migratory birds, small mammals, because once you have something go, it may create something for something else to go. You know, right now, one of the big issues out west is the is the sage grouse. You know, they're waffling between being on the endangered species list and not because of, you know, modernization and habitat loss. Well, you know, if the if that goes and sagebrush grows, guess what? A lot of mule deer eat a lot of sagebrush, and, you know, that can affect that. So it can create cascading effects. So being part of a, a conservation group, being part of any type of conversation where you can promote, you know, these understandings, and there's actually things out there that we don't just, you know, act like Elmer Fudd and walk out there and just start blasting animals because we feel like it. There's laws and stuff set, set against that. And, uh, you know, I'll defend it till the day I die. People who go out and poach aren't hunting. They're poachers. You know, people who go out and hunt and fish and obey the laws and legally do it, those are the people that really uphold conservation principles. You might not know it, and you might not know all the laws behind it, but as we kind of get more into these things, and we'll intersperse these every once in a while when either Chris is not here or I'm not here, we'll give more information regarding this stuff because it's important things to know. And the reason they're important things to know is because as a hunter, fisherman, outdoors person in the United States, these are things that you should know where they came from. So you can say, hey, you know, I, I, I have a better understanding of where these trails came from. I have a better understanding of why our deer populations are either doing good or bad or why, you know, I can't take a motorized vehicle into a wilderness area or used a wheeled vehicle in their period. A lot of these things are things that can come under attack, you know, through votes and things along those lines. 
So it's our job to really kind of look at this stuff and say, hey, you know, what is it that we want for our outdoor community to stay healthy and to stay in a good place? You know, it also starts with private landowners too. Any private landowner, I know at least in Ohio or Kentucky, can call your local wildlife officer and they can connect you with resources to be able to bring your land up to where you would like it in terms of QDMH standards, being able to house quail, being able to set up for CRP stuff, a number of different things to be able to create habitat, which is the most important thing that we can do as stewards of the land. So all that being said, guys, this has been Fueled by the Outdoors. I've been your host, Rick Cates. And again, we hope to hear back from you guys and any questions, thoughts, or concerns you guys have, send us an email, shoot us something on the Elite Outdoors on Facebook or on our um, Instagram at the Elite Outdoors. That is at the Elite Outdoors. And as always, if you're going out, take somebody with you, allow for them to experience the wonderment that is the outdoors. And as always, have a very safe and happy 4th of July. Talk to you later, guys. Bye. And that will do it for our podcast today. Please remember to subscribe, like, review on all major podcasting platforms. We are available on Apple, Google, TuneIn, CastBox, Spotify, and all other major podcasting platforms as always we are available for contact at the elite outdoors one at gmail.com that is the elite outdoors the number one at gmail.com thanks a lot guys talk to you next time